The author John Maxwell, who's kind of a leadership guru, once wrote these words. Life is a matter of choices, and every choice you make makes you. See, each day we're faced with choices to make, and we have to decide. Some of our choices and decisions are ordinary. They even go without much thought at all. They're routine. So things like what to eat, what to wear, what to purchase, how to organize our day, how to spend our time, how you're going to get to work each day, which route should you take to avoid traffic patterns. And when you get to work, what will you prioritize first? What will you do at work? And when you get home in your leisure time, what will you read? What will you watch? Will you click on this or that? And in in your relationships today, who are you going to talk to? What are you going to say? How are you going to say it? What words will you choose? What words will you not say? And even though these choices are ordinary and routine, the decisions we make add up throughout the course of our day, our months, our lives, and they become significant. And then you look at the big decisions in our life, and we know that these have a lot of weight to them. Like, who are you going to vote for? What causes will you support? What school will you go to? Are you going to go to a trade school? Are you going to go to grad school? Who will you date if you date at all? Will you get married? Will you try to have children? What will you name them? More importantly, how will you raise them? What career field will you enter? Should you stay with this company or should you move to another? Or should you start your own? Should you rent a house? Should you buy a house? Where should you live? What do you believe about God? What is your life going to be about? What would you be willing to live for? And what will you be willing to die for? I mean, just listing those out right now probably is giving you some decision fatigue, right? let alone having to actually consider those choices and making a decision. But the reality is we have to make decisions and every decision we make makes us. And it begins to start to define us and it begins to set us down a trajectory and down a path of life. And at every choice, we are at a fork in the road. And at every turn, as we make our decisions, we're charting the course of our lives. We intuitively know good decisions lead to positive consequences. Bad decisions lead to negative consequences. So how do you make those decisions? What is the rubric? What is the the, the lens through which you see the world? What helps you determine what you're going to do? How do you process the decisions and the choices before you? And how do you decide in a way that leads to the life that you want to live? The Bible says that the ability to navigate the ordinary and the major decisions of life that lead to flourishing is called wisdom. Wisdom is this ability to navigate the ordinary and the major decisions of life that lead to a life marked by thriving and flourishing. And so today we start a summer sermon series called The Way of Wisdom. And we're going to be walking through the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs to learn how to live a life that is marked by, characterized by wisdom. And so today, as we, uh, as we begin, we're looking at the first seven verses of chapter one, and these first seven verses give us an overview of this book of wisdom. They're going to tell us what we can expect as we make our way through the whole book. 
And so these verses answer three questions for us that we're going to look at in this order this morning. The first question is, what is wisdom? If we're going to live a life of wisdom, we should probably know what it is. Second, it's going to tell us who is wisdom for. Like, who should be the ones grabbing hold of wisdom? And then finally, Solomon is going to tell us, how do we become wise? Where do we begin the path of wisdom? So let's first look at the first question, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now this first verse kind of serves as the title of the book and tells us about its main author. This word Proverbs comes from a Hebrew word that means likeness. So when you look at these Proverbs in the book, they're they're making um, comparisons and contrasts in, in order to teach an object lesson. It's saying life is like this, or life is like that, or life, uh, wisdom looks like this, and it doesn't look like that. It's making all of these comparisons. Sometimes that observation is really compact, and it comes to us in a memorable and a pithy statement. Like one of my favorites goes like this, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's short, it's compact, and as you mull over that, as you think about that wisdom saying, you go, okay, the way that iron is rubbed against another strong surface like iron, and as it sharpens each other, that's what two people can do with each other as they sharpen one another. And as you mull over that, you gain wisdom. Now, sometimes a proverb can be a longer object lesson that's really drawn out from experience. But regardless of length, a proverb offers us more than just common sense, more than just Ben Franklin's uh, wisdom. It, it, it offers us something more. It gives us a verbal representation of how life works. We, so so in, in these words, it says, this is how life works. And we're invited to consider that scenario. We're invited to think about that example and learn the lesson, watch this, before living it out before we go wisdom says you don't have to learn everything by trial and error wisdom says come think about it for a minute you can learn wisdom chart a path of life where you make good choices and wise decisions where you thrive and flourish that's what a proverb is meant to do now in verse one we also find out that the main author of the book is king solomon he was king, he was the son of David, and he was the king of Israel from 971 to 931 BC. He reigned for 40 years. You can read all about his life in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11. So if you want to go back and learn more about this author, 1 Kings chapter 1 uh, through chapter 11. Now today, what we have today, when you open up your Bible and you see the book of Proverbs, is about in the middle. It's a compilation of Solomon's wisdom as well as some other writers. And it's kind of an edited work together that God saw fit to make it into this book of wisdom. Now before we dig into chapter one, there's one more thing I want to tell you about Solomon. When he, he became king at a very young age and, and he had just become king for a little bit and the Lord came to Solomon and said, hey Solomon, ask for anything and I'll give it to you. It's amazing, right? Like God says, I'll give you, I've got a blank check to give you whatever you want. Just let me know and I'll give it to you. And so the young Solomon had a decision to make. 
He could have asked for riches and power. He could have asked for long life and prosperity. But instead, he humbly asked for wisdom. Look at what he replied to the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 3, 7 and 9. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? The Lord was pleased with his request for wisdom, and he granted it to him. And because he didn't ask for riches and fame and power and prosperity, he gave him wisdom, and he also gave him all of those things too. The Bible tells us that Solomon's wealth and prosperity, that his wisdom and understanding were second to none. And now, all of that wisdom that God gave Solomon is preserved for us in the Bible to read and to learn and to let it shape him as we live. I wonder this morning, will we be like Solomon who says, Lord, please give to me your wisdom. So with that posture and attitude, let's look at verses two through six as we continue to ask, what is wisdom? Solomon says, look, this is wisdom. To know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. And I'm going to unpack what all of that means. But these verses tell us the purpose and benefits of wisdom. So let me, let me start by giving us a good working definition of wisdom. I kind of alluded to it earlier. But this word wisdom in the Bible is a really interesting word because what it means is masterful understanding, skill, and expertise. It's not always just about, uh, uh, it doesn't just occur in the book of Proverbs. We see this same word used in a variety of contexts throughout the Old Testament. And it's always referring to someone's skill and ability to produce something valuable. So let me give you a couple examples. Um, it's used to refer to skilled sailors who can navigate difficult seas. They would say that they're, they're, they're wise sailors, and it has to do with their skill and ability. It's also used to refer to skilled weavers who created these tapestries that are, that are, that are built strong and beautiful. It's used to refer to skilled administrators who govern and lead with excellence. It's often used to refer to skilled craftsmen who create long-lasting structures and beautiful objects. It's this word that says there's a, they've mastered something. They have an expertise and a skill. So when we look at wisdom as it applies to our life, it's the skill of godly living that leads to a life of lasting value. Wisdom is the skill of godly living that leads to a life of lasting value. It's the skill, the expertise, the competence to understand how life really works and how to achieve results that honor the Lord. That's wisdom. It's not merely just intellectual cognition. It's the skill to live life well. 
Now, with that definition, let's unpack verses two through six. As we do, we're going to come across five different aspects of wisdom that we need in order to become wise. These are going to be five different skills that together provide a comprehensive vision for the wisdom needed to make these decisions in life, to navigate this course of life that leads to a life of lasting value. So the first skill here is practical wisdom. In verse 2, Solomon says that the Proverbs are given so that you can know wisdom. Now, this word for knowing refers to experiential learning as well as cognitive learning. It's more than just information, data, and facts. It's not just about the, the information, but it's the kind of learning where we acquire information and then we put it to use. It's not just so that you can win Jeopardy and have, you know, this longstanding um, um, track record. It's so that you can actually put that information to good use. In verse 3, we see that the wise person receives instruction in wise dealings. This, this concept of wise dealings refers to the practical, everyday, common sense, and ability to navigate the day-to-day life. This person um, knows how to just do the normal things of life that, that uh, where, where often unwise people, foolish people, get tripped up on the everyday things. This person knows how to interact with people. This person um, knows how to manage their relationships. This practically wise person has learned self-discipline. They know how to organize their day, to get up when they need to get up, to prioritize the truly important things, and to deprioritize the less important things. This person doesn't get hung up on the minor things. They major on the majors, and they minor on the minors. This person, Solomon says in verse 4, has this practical wisdom is marked by prudence and discretion. Those aren't words we often use when we're just walking about, so let me help you understand those. Prudence is one of those words that almost, I bet you went this whole week and didn't say the word prudence and didn't hear the word prudence, right? Am I right? Okay. Here's what prudence means. It means to make sound judgments. It's to use resources well. There's a, there's a skill and, and, a, and a shrewdness to know what's important. It means un, avoiding unnecessary risks. This person doesn't waste things. It means being patient. The prudent person is a patient person. They're not, they're not reckless. Discretion. This is the ability to make responsible decisions and to plan for achieving goals. And if you take all of those things together, practical wisdom refers to the, the, the skill and ability to get things done. This person can, can conceive of goals and put them into reality. They just have the practical outworkings of what it looks like to navigate day-to-day life. Now, the second skill that Solomon says we need is intellectual wisdom. In verse 2, Solomon writes that wisdom also involves the ability to understand words of insight. Now, insight, this is the ability to distinguish truth from falsehood. It's the ability to notice differences that people often don't see. An insightful person can um, look at a situation and make sense of it. When I was studying for this, I immediately thought of Sherlock Holmes. He was a person of great insight, right? He would, uh, other detectives would already be at the scene and they can't make sense of it. They're, they're kind of following one clue this way and Holmes shows up, scans the room for about 10 seconds and he sees 20 things that nobody else saw and has already solved the crime. 
right? He's a person of great insight. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. People of insight, they, they're those people that bring clarity and distinction when other people only see confusion. Maybe you have a friend like that, and, you, and, and they're the person you go to, and you're going, I'm, I, I'm, I'm confused. I don't know what to make sense of. And then you just explain what's going on, and they're like, oh, you should do this, this, and this, and this. They, they've learned to push aside what's not important, and they, they can just see right away the path. And in verse 4, Solomon also mentions that wisdom requires knowledge. So there is this component of wisdom that does have to do with information and understanding and, and facts and data. Knowledge on its own isn't wisdom, but wisdom does require knowledge. So when you take all that together, intellectual wisdom is the skill in acquiring information, distinguishing truth from falsehood, important from irrelevant, and then putting that knowledge to work. That's true intelligence, and it's a skill we need to live a life of wisdom. Now, the third skill is moral wisdom. Solomon writes that uh, one, of the, one of the aspects of wisdom is receiving instruction in righteousness, justice, and equity. You remember that in verse 3? Now, this covers the realm of our ethics and moral living. See, it's not enough just to intellectually know the law. Wisdom knows how to apply the law and to discern the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. A moral, wise life seeks to live a life that's marked by righteousness, knowing right from wrong, not according to the standard of the world, but according to God's standard. See, oftentimes, God's standard of holiness and morality is higher than our culture's standard of morality. You, know, you may have noticed our culture is shifting and morality is changing. What used to be um, uh, 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 considered wrong is now being considered right. And the godly moral person recognizes those distinctions. That godly wisdom knows that morality conforms to God's holiness, not cultural shifts. Our culture is not a good arbiter of what is right and wrong. Only God can do that. Moral wisdom also looks to live a life that's marked by justice. So what is justice? Justice is treating others fairly, and when you see something wrong, making it right. Moral wisdom looks to live a life of long obedience in the same direction along a straight path. So if you take all that together, moral wisdom is the ability to live a holy life based not on the standards of the world, not comparing yourself to your neighbor. Maybe you are doing better than your neighbor, but the moral life is a life that is based on God's standard, seeking to treat everyone fairly, without distinctions, without prejudices. And when you see something wrong, to do everything you can to make it right and to do so with faithfulness over the long haul. That's moral wisdom. Now, the fourth skill, discerning wisdom. We need to be a people of discernment. In verse 6, Solomon says that the wise will be able to understand Proverbs and the, the words of the wise, right? Wisdom is not one of those things that you can hear it immediately and you fully get it. You have, to, you have to chew on it. You have to discern it. Wisdom often comes to us in these riddles and these, these, these tight packages that need to be unwrapped and unpacked. Discernment is this ability to grasp and comprehend what is obscure and to have the perseverance and determination to stick with it. 
See, those who desire wisdom will put in the work. They'll invest the time to unpack the riddle, to unpack the wisdom, to think through the proverb. Understanding doesn't often come immediately, instantaneously. And you think about our culture today that, 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 that craves instantaneous things. When you click on a website and it doesn't load immediately, what do you do? You click out of it. You go somewhere else, right? It's got to be, it's got to happen right now. We want Instapots and, and, and things done right away. We are not a culture who likes to wait around for anything. And discernment is one of those things that comes to the patient. It takes time to understand. And those who will stick with it will become wise. Now, finally, the fifth thing, directional wisdom. If we're going to live a life that is truly wise, we need to have directional wisdom. In verse 5, Solomon talked about obtaining guidance. This is what I call directional wisdom. This Hebrew word for guidance was originally used to refer to how a sailor would direct the course of a ship by pulling the ropes on the mast and directing the sail. So the idea here would be that uh, is this ability to steer a right course through life. Solomon says you need to have that ability to navigate the sails of your ship to navigate a straight path. One of the most frequent questions I get asked as a pastor is this, what is God's will for my life? How many of you ever asked that question? What is God's will for my life? All right, I'm going to remove some of the, uh, the, uh, the questions around that. First and foremost, God's will for your life is that you would glorify him that you would enjoy him, and that you would be sanctified. Almost all the places where it says, and this is the Lord's will for your life, you're like, okay, what is that next thing it says? That you would be sanctified and that you would glorify God with your life, that all of your life would be pleasing to him and that you would progressively over time learn how to live a morally upright and holy life that shines the gospel. Now you notice there's not a lot of particulars around what that is, right? That, there's a reason for that, because the gospel can be lived out by any person at any time, in any culture, anywhere. So it's, it's widely applicable. God is saying, listen, I care so much more about your character and why you do things and how you do things more than the what of the things that you do. God cares about your character and how you do things, and why you're doing them, the motivation for those things. That is God's will for your life. Now, second, right, because we actually do have to make real decisions. God rarely directs your path with visible signs. People always tell me, I'm, I'm looking for these signs, and I, I've asked God to, to give it to me, and so I, I start to look around at everything, and if, if I think it smells like it might be something God dropped out and put out there for me, then that must be the direction of God's life, uh, for my life. More often than not, Here's how God directs you. He's going to develop your character. He's going to teach you how to follow him. That's called directional wisdom. He's going to teach you how to steer the course of your ship in a path that's straight. It comes over time. It's not instantaneous. You will learn how to make directionally wise decisions over time. We learn how to handle the big decisions in life as we learn how to handle the smaller ones. As he sees you faithful with small things, he starts giving you uh, responsibilities 
with bigger things. That's how God leads us. Now, if you combine all of that together, the skills of of practical wisdom, intellectual wisdom, moral wisdom, discerning wisdom, directional wisdom, we learn how to faithfully make decisions that honor and please the Lord. Now, if you notice in all that, I didn't give you a formula. There wasn't a pat answer, right? That's not how wisdom works. Wisdom in God's economy requires faith. And God is interested in developing your character and your trust and dependence on him so that as you grow in maturity, you're able to make decisions that bring him glory and lead to your flourishing. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is the practical, intellectual, moral, discerning, and directional skills of godly living so that a life of lasting value is produced. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. Now, who is wisdom for? Verses two through six specifically listed that wisdom is for three people, the simple, the young, and the wise. Now, if you take all that together, Solomon's saying basically everybody. Everybody needs wisdom. The simple specifically refers to those who might be naive or gullible. This is the person who's easily misled or enticed uh, with, with bad advice. Now, this person specifically needs to grow in wisdom so that they're not taken advantage of. If you find that there are aspects of your life that are simple, that you're easily uh, directed in certain ways, wisdom is for you. The young is pretty simple, right? That refers to, to adolescents and young adults who haven't lived life long enough to develop wisdom. Because wisdom cannot be microwaved and it cannot be won through the lottery. It's developed over time. And finally, Solomon says that wisdom is for the wise. Now, at first, that might seem contradictory, because if you're wise, then why do you need more wisdom? But if you've ever met someone who's truly wise, one of the things they'll tell you is, I'm always learning. You never graduate from the school of wisdom. The truly wise person knows you never arrive. So what Solomon is saying is that everyone needs wisdom, and you'll never grow out of needing it. Back in verse 2, Solomon said that the Proverbs are written to give us wisdom and instruction. That word instruction includes both the positive and the negative instructions, right? Both discipline and direction. So we think of instruction as direction in a certain path, how to do something. But, but this Hebrew word says, well, it's, it's, it's also about correction, also about correction. If wisdom is the skill, then instruction and discipline is the means to get there. All of the benefits of wisdom come to those who have this posture of receptivity. You have to be willing to have an ear to hear and receive direction and discipline. You need to receive both instruction and correction, even when it hurts. See, we are not born wise. Nobody is. The gains of wisdom are hard fought as the pride of our heart gives way to this teachable humility that begins to desire instruction, that begins to even welcome discipline. Again, that is so contrary to our culture. We we, we just buck anytime someone says that we might be doing something wrong. Teachability says, hey, I I could be doing this wrong. I, I could be wrong on this. Help me understand. If you notice through verses two through six, Solomon used words like receiving instruction, hearing, 
learning, obtaining. You know what all those words have in common? There's something given to you to receive, not something you already possess, right? You're hearing something you don't have. You're obtaining something that you don't have. You're receiving something that you don't have. If I could summarize the posture and the heart around wisdom in one word, it would be teachable. If you are going to become wise, you must become teachable. A person who is teachable is humble and knows that he or she needs to grow and that there's room for improvement and growth, that you have not arrived. And not only is a teachable person humble, but a teachable person is hungry. There's this desire, this insatiable uh, a desire to grow. They're never complacent. They're never apathetic. They know there's always more room to grow. And the Bible tells us that if we'll remain teachable, we can even ask the Lord for wisdom. James 1 verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if we will ask God for wisdom with a teachable, receptive heart, the Bible promises that God will give it to us. So I want to give us some helpful handles around how we become a teachable people. So I've got five diagnostic questions, okay? Now, if you're here with friends or if you're here with your spouse, no elbowing, okay? I, can, I just know it's coming, all right? Here we go. Number one, some diagnostic questions. Do you admit when you're wrong? The truly teachable person will admit when they are wrong. Number two, do you ask for help? Are you, see, you hear that? It's, it's a willingness to receive going, I, I may be wrong on this. I need help. Okay? Number three, I had to write this one for myself. Do you act defensive when criticized? Or do you listen openly for truth? Not that every criticism is 100% accurate, but is there a kernel of truth in someone's even um, uh, wrongful criticism or ill criticism? But is there a kernel of truth in what they're saying? This is where we have to learn to eat the meat and spit out the bone, right? Do you listen openly for truth? Number four. Can you point to areas or times in your life where you have changed your opinion on a settled matter based on new information? If, if, if there's never been a point in your life where you've ever changed anything, you might not be teachable. Can you point to things and go, I used to believe this, and then through wisdom, through correction, through discipline, I changed my mind on this. Number five, would those close to you describe you as teachable? That's probably the hardest one to ask, to ask someone, am I, you know me really well, am I teachable? And then being willing to listen to what they have to say. Five questions to help us diagnose and grow in teachability. So who is wisdom for? It's for everyone because everyone needs it and the teachable person will receive it. Finally, let's ask, how do you get it? How does someone get wisdom? Proverbs 1, verse 7, Solomon says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and dis, uh, dis, uh, instruction. Now, this verse serves as this underlying foundational theme for the whole book. Uh, uh, this, 
the, the way this is worded, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, will be repeated another 13 times throughout the book. So here's another example in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Solomon is saying, listen, everything about what you're going to learn only makes sense with this underlying theme, the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 1.7, Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In verse 9.10, he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What he's saying is wisdom and knowledge go hand in hand. Remember, we looked at that Hebrew word for knowledge, and it means more than just information and facts. It means cognitive knowledge and experiential knowledge. It means acquiring knowledge and putting it into good use, right? That pairs nicely with wisdom, this skill of godly living so that our lives produce lasting value. And what he's saying is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the foundation for it is the fear of the Lord. This concept, this fear of the Lord, is underlying every single uh, piece of wisdom literature that we read. So you should be thinking, no matter where you are in the book of Proverbs, even as iron sharpens iron, so when one man sharpens another, underneath that, the foundation that that sits on is the fear of the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? It is a rich biblical concept. You'll find it all throughout the, the, the Bible that describes a person's posture and attitude towards God. Now, this concept often trips people up because they confuse reverent fear with terrifying fear. It's not really the way that we typically use the word fear in our culture um, today. The reformer Martin Luther distinguished, he was really helpful here, he distinguished between the fear that a prisoner might have and the fear that a child has towards their parent. A uh, A prisoner fears their tormentor, why? Because there's the threat of pain and punishment and unjust treatment. That would be a terrifying kind of fear. But in a loving home, a child has a fear, a reverence for their parents that's birthed out of a tremendous respect and love for them. And what this fear does is it produces in them a desire to want to please and honor their parents. So to fear the Lord means that we have this profound sense of awe and reverence and respect for God. See, the Bible tells us that, that, that those who believe in God are, are like his sons and daughters. We've been adopted into his family. So there's this, this intimacy of relationship, this nearness. But at the same time, that closeness, that nearness is never meant to cause us to take God for granted, to treat him in a flippant or cavalier manner. So when a person rightly fears the Lord, it actually drives us towards him, not away from him. The fear of the Lord is this posture that recognizes that God is God and I am not, that he is central and I am not, that he is powerful and in control and I am not, that God is perfectly just and he's perfectly loving and at the same time, he's merciful, forgiving and loving in a way that I am not. To fear the Lord is this posture of humility that stirs in us a desire to know the Lord, to follow him, and to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we fear the Lord, we we see our sin, and we want to turn away from it. We want to change. We want to turn towards him. When a person rightly fears the Lord, they orient their whole life around him, and they don't take him for granted. When a person fears the Lord, his word, the scriptures become food for your soul. His presence is like a warming fire on a cold night. When we rightly fear the Lord, our love for him 
is matured and it's deepened so that following him is no longer a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, following him is where our hearts become full, our desires become his desires, and submitting to his will actually becomes an expression of our love, and it begins to fulfill us in a way that following, walking away from him never would. In short, the fear of the Lord means that we have an attitude of submission, respect, dependence, and worship. And Solomon says the pathway, the gateway, the beginning of wisdom understands who God is and who we are in relation to him. And there's this respect and awe and reverence for him. Solomon's saying that's the beginning place of wisdom. Contrary to that is the fool, the one who despises wisdom and instruction. When you despise something, you disregard it. You treat it with this, this spirit of contempt. You, 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 you treat it as something worthless and not valuable. Solomon is saying that the, the fool takes the wisdom of God and it disparages it. It, it treats it as worthless, as, as not having value. And in their own pride and the puffing up of themselves, they don't want instruction. They don't want correction. They, they don't want discipline. They want to do things their own way without regard for God. They consider his words to be worthless and without value. C.S. Lewis in uh, his book, Mere Christianity, wrote these words. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Right? The haughty person, the prideful person is always looking down. And if you're looking down, you'll miss who is standing above you. Where the fear of the Lord produces a humility, a teachability, and a desire for wisdom, the arrogance of a fool is above correction, and there's no desire to submit to the Lord. Let me just be as clear as I can. To despise the wisdom of God is to despise God himself. Verse 7 is saying that wisdom begins by looking up and seeing God and rightly understanding who he is. And when you do, it produces a reverential fear and awe of him, and that begins to put us on the path of wisdom. Pastor Ray Ortland is really helpful here. What your ABCs are to reading Shakespeare, what playing the scales are to performing Bach, what two plus two equals four is to doing calculus, the fear of the Lord is to wisdom. We start there, and we never leave it behind. Our search for reality can go wrong, not only because of miscalculations on the way, but also because of one grand blunder at the start, leaving God out and making ourselves the judge of everything. So as we begin and start this journey this summer, this way of wisdom, we are at our first fork in the road. Solomon is saying, the beginning point is the fear of the Lord. And he's asking us, will we go down the path of wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, or will we go down the path of the fool and despise wisdom? 
This is the first and biggest decision we have to make because it governs the trajectory of our path. If we get off here, we have no way of getting back on the path. When we decide to fear God, to know him and treasure him above everything else, then that decision begins to govern all other decisions. You see, when God is your highest priority, he's your deepest love and he's your foundational trust, then every decision and choice you make in life is made from that truth, from that point. And so you begin to ask, will this choice Will this path lead me to the Lord where he remains my highest priority, where my love for him will be deepened and my strength in him be developed? And if that choice leads you down the path, then you know this is a good and wise decision. But if you come to a choice, if you come to a decision, and that decision would actually cause you to deprioritize God, to weaken your love for him, to disrupt your trust for him, then you have to call that decision a foolish one. And ultimately, here's how you're going to make those decisions. Your preferred path will be based on your desires. See, I can intellectually convince you you can go, man, that was a tight sermon, well put together. I, I believe what you're saying is intellectually true. You can believe in your mind right now that following God is the right and proper path. But if you do not desire it, you will not go down the path of wisdom. David Brooks in his uh, book, The Second Mountain, tells the story about a man who bought a house with a bamboo stand growing near his driveway. He wanted to get rid of it. So he cut it down, chopped it down. He took an ax to its roots. You can almost see the guy out there just banging away at it. He took a shovel and he dug down as far as he could to remove the root system. Then he poured poison over what remained. And finally, he filled the hole with several feet of gravel. And just to be sure, he paved over it with cement. Two years later, walks out his driveway and he noticed something. This little green bamboo shoot sticking up through the cement. What we find is that bamboo was unquenchable. It could not stop pushing upward. And the bamboo shoot inside of all of us is called desire. Ultimately, your desires always win. You do what you want to do 100% of the time. Without fail, without exception, you, your desires always win. So if you want any chance of going down the path of wisdom, you have to desire it. But you're saying, Clint, I don't know how to change my desires. How do I change them? And in order to change our desires, we have to see that something else is more desirable That's how our desires work. When we see something more desirable, guess what? We start to desire it, and we leave the the lesser desirable thing behind. Thomas Chalmers, who was a Puritan pastor, once wrote, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, an old desire, is by the expulsive power of a new one. I love these old guys. They have such rich language. What is he saying? He's saying it's not enough to convince someone that their current desires are wrong. You could actually believe, like, I I know I don't desire the right things. 
But in order to expel the lesser desire, you have to see that there is something greater to love, that there is something better to desire. And when you see that greater object to love, our hearts simultaneously reject and expel the lesser object in order to grab a hold of the object more worthy of our affection. That's what Chalmers called the expulsive, the expelling power of a greater affection. The new desire expels the old one. So what could possibly cause you and I to have our desires changed? Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul was saying, I used to act ignorantly, stuck in my unbelief. I was a fool who despised the wisdom of God. But then he received mercy. And the grace of God overflowed in him. The love of Jesus expelled the old affections and the old ways. The grace of God overflowed towards him. And the impact of God's grace in his life expelled his former ignorance, his former unbelief, and his former desires when he realized that Christ Jesus died for him while he was an undeserving and ill-deserving sinner The love of Christ conquered his heart. And in the wake of his love, Paul found new desires and a new love for God. That's how it happens. You have to grab hold of a greater affection. And when you realize that the truest wisdom, the deepest truth, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me, when you truly believe that, when your heart grabs a hold of it and you put your faith and trust in him, you will find new desires in your heart to humbly and faithfully walk down the path of wisdom. Author Annie Dillard once said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. So family, how will you spend your days? How will you spend your life? What choices will you make that add up day by day to be your life? Will you desire Jesus above all else? Will you entrust yourself to the Lord? Will you, like a faithful son and daughter, fear the Lord, love him, trust him, serve him above all else? Will you go down that path of wisdom? Let's pray.